I had a tab title um, today's sermon um, on the Facebook stuff as um, check yourself before you wreck yourself. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk more about checking ourselves. (laughs) Um, So last time I was up here, which was the week before last, we talked about a couple ways in which Uh, The church is similar to the nation of Israel, some of the similar uh, struggles that we have and what we can learn from those similarities. And last time I focused on how Israel was waiting on the return of the, they were waiting on the Messiah. And we too are waiting on the Messiah. And um, we talked about how they missed him as, as a whole, as a corporate body, as a nation. They missed him when he came back. And as for us, we're not going to miss him when he comes back, because that's going to be impossible. But it's possible for us to miss him in the meantime, in the smaller things. And especially when I talked about we're walking backwards. You know, if we get focused on his past acts and things like that, um, we could start walking backwards instead of walking forward with him and being participants in what he's doing and going forward in wisdom and and then the knowledge of what he's doing. So that's what we talked about last time. And I did touch on this point, but what, what I'm going to elaborate on today is another way that we are similar to um, Israel. And that way is that the uh, Israel was supposed to be one part of their call and identity was to be a conduit of blessing, right? Um, right from the beginning with Abraham, uh, he says that God says, you're going to bless the nations. I'm going to bless the nations through you. So they were supposed to be this conduit that was part of bringing the restoration of the blessing of God to all of humanity. And that got disrupted. It got disrupted by a lot of things like legalism and hypocrisy and tradition etc., on and on and on. And I feel like this is a good warning um, for us. This is a place where we as the church can check ourselves before we wreck ourselves, because the church is, too, to be a conduit of blessing. Um, we're to be a part of sharing the blessing, restoring the blessing to humanity. We are to be part of the vehicle that brings restoration between God and man. That's part of our role here on earth. And that's just the Great Commission, Um, which is what's behind me here in Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Oh, so that's a familiar portion of scripture. It's stated a little differently in other places, but the point is we're to function as a vehicle of blessing um, from the Lord to humanity. And looking at Israel's past mistakes in a role that was very similar to that give us, gives us an opportunity to drive that blessing vehicle defensively instead of just reacting to finding ourselves in the ditch. We can take a look at these examples and say, is there a chance that we're falling into the same types of habits that they fell into? So let's start by looking at them. And I think it's important, it's essential to now acknowledge that 
Israel's calling and identity was somewhat paradoxical in its nature. And a paradox is something that it's like two things that look like they are contradictory to each other. Like they can't both exist at the same time, but they are both true. They're true at the same time. And the paradoxical thing about their identity and calling was that they were to be set apart for God, right? They were God's chosen people. They're wholly set apart for him. Also, like I just said, they are to uh, bless the nations. God is going to bless the nations through them. And God does this paradox thing all the time, and he does it perfectly The way that God embodies paradox is something that you can meditate on for a lifetime. It's something we can always be learning from. God the Father and Jesus are masters of paradox. Think about how God perfectly embodies justice and mercy. He's all-powerful, and he is gentler than any of us could ever be. Think about Jesus. Um, Jesus came in grace and truth. That's what the gospel said. He came in grace and truth. So I'm, I'm from Missouri, and there's lots of graceful people. And when people in Missouri come with grace, it means they tell you lies so that you can feel good. That's the kind of grace they come in. That's not what Jesus did. He comes in the type of grace that doesn't compromise truth, and that's difficult. That's not easy. Human beings can't really do that well, usually in their own power. He's also the lion and the lamb. He is Lord and master, and he's also servant. And when we're made new by the Holy Spirit, and we're sanctified, and we continually begin to look more and more like Jesus, we begin to embody that paradox as well, because we're walking by the Spirit. The Spirit helps us rightly divide how to live like Jesus. But when we try to do it in our own power, in our own flesh, when we begin to make the Christian walk about formulas and rules and what it should look like, we often fall off to one way or the other because we can't just live in the tension of that paradox. So we end up in legalism, religiosity, We end up condemning, shaming, guilting other people, things like that. Or we end up over off on the other side and permissiveness. And we end up with do what you want. Santa Claus in the sky gives me what I want and I get to do what I want. We're all familiar with that. We can end up in either of those. But the Holy Spirit helps us to rightly divide and to really live like Jesus lived. So that's kind of some examples of paradox. Let's look more at Israel's identity and these two different ways to look at it. So this is the set apart, the holiness portion. And there's lots of examples, but let's look at this one at Exodus 19. Moses went up the mountain to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you'll carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So like I said, this is discussed in so many other places with slightly different verbiage, but Israel is told over and over again, you're set apart. You're meant for me. 
Don't do the things the other nations do. Don't engage in things that make you unclean. We see that a lot because you're holy. You're set apart. I dwell in your midst. And um, we all know how that ends up turning out. But we're going to move on to the second part here. So this is the other side of the paradox, how they were also supposed to be a blessing to the nations. Deuteronomy 4, 5 is where we're going to start here. Look, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God has commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to possess. Carefully follow them, for this will show your wisdom and understanding and the eyes of the peoples. When they hear about all these statutes, they will say, This great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God near to it, as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call to him? So you can see the other side of the paradox. Part of one of the ways that Israel was intended to bless the nations was by representing God to them, by glorifying him, by pointing to him as the one true God. And there are times in the Old Testament stories where we can see glimmers of that. We could see like little breaks of hope um, where that's happening, where they're doing that. Just one small example of that is here in 1 Kings with Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 10. And this is the Queen of Sheba story. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your words and about your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe the reports until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, I was not even told half. Your wisdom and prosperity far exceed the report I heard. How happy are your men. How happy are these servants of yours who always stand in your presence hearing your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God. He delighted in you and put you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to carry out justice and righteousness. So you can see here, this is like a a little preview of the Messianic kingdom. And another great example, as BJ has talked about so many times, about how God operates through and uses people that are imperfect. Um, How he does that so many times. So this is a little preview of the Messianic kingdom. People were drawn to Jesus for lots of different reasons. And they glorified God because of him. I mean, as we know, people and uh, what they do with God's favor and um, what they ultimately end up with is a mixed bag. We know that because we needed Jesus. And Solomon is definitely no exception. I think he could have used a little more emphasis on the holy and set apart side of things. Um, does anybody know how First Kings chapter 11 starts right after this? It starts with the story of Solomon's unfaithfulness to God and, and how he, he falls and falters in those things. So... Ultimately, everything was always pointing forward to Jesus. You know, we needed him desperately to make things right. So, I was thinking about this. Of these two sides of the paradox, remember I told you that when we get into ourselves, when we're in our flesh, we we fall to one side or the other. There's this saying that goes, there's only one angle at which you can stand perfectly straight. But there are millions to which you can fall to one side or the other. And when we're in our flesh, that's what we most often do. I was thinking about this in terms of Israel. And it seemed to me at first that they most often fell to the set-apart side, to the holy side, to the otherness, like we're this other thing. But it wasn't necessarily in like a pure way 
because if they also did a lot of mixing with the nations that they weren't supposed to do that wasn't good for them and that wasn't a part of blessing them either. It was almost like they had this <clears throat> kind of a perversion on the idea of being set apart or being holy, and it became a self-righteousness. And that seemed to be a real problem. That's what they really adhered to and focused on was this um, set-apartness, their perceived holiness, their access to creator God, because they did have that. Um, Even though they weren't and they couldn't hold up their end of the covenant, uh, they couldn't hold up their end of the bargain on their own strength. They still acted like it. They still acted like they could. And they really uh, uh, focused on that self-righteousness. And that rotten fruit was really ripened by the time we reached Jesus. And you see it all over the stories of the Gospels. We hear about it in the letters, um, just the way that Jewish religious leaders would treat Gentiles, and in stories like uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the tax collector was really the one that was penitent. He was repentant, and the tax and the Pharisee could do nothing but look down on him and say, good thing I'm not like that guy. It's like, you need to be more like that guy. And uh, stories like that kind of paint a picture of the hostility that had grown between Israel and the nations instead of blessing and holiness and all of those things. So I see a lesson in that. I see a lesson in that for the church. I don't know that it'll ever run that deep for us because we don't have that national identity thing going on, but this is still something that we can look out for. It's a danger for the church today to be so focused on your otherness your set-apartness, your special and privileged access to God. Because, yeah, you do have that. But you can look about it wrongly. It can turn into self-righteousness, and it can become a wall of hostility between us and them, the people that are in and the people that are out. And we can learn from that. We certainly don't want to do that because we are a blessing vehicle. We're here to share the truth. So we don't want to miss out on those opportunities. I lost my place. (laughs) So the Holy Spirit, he dwells in us. Of course he does. And it's awesome. Like, it's indescribable. We are the sacred space where heaven and earth meet. And we just get to walk around being that thing. And it's a great benefit to us, but it's not just for our benefit. It's not just something that we can get together and powwow and (laughs) pat each other on the back. You know, it's not just for us. It's for the nations. It's for all of humanity. Um, Peter puts it this way. First Peter chapter 2. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and to his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we're to live these lives that when people see them, they glorify God. Just like the examples that we've already looked at. So you're set apart. You are other. Holy Spirit dwells within you. You're a new creation. You're a part of this royal priesthood. 
but you also are meant to represent God to humanity, not to despise them because they don't believe the same as you because they're different than you because they do things that you think are wrong. You're not meant to despise them. And that all just leads us back around to where we started with the Great Commission to go and to make disciples, to share the truth of the gospel with people. And as I was thinking about doing that in the world that we live in today, a particular story came to my mind, which is in Luke chapter 5. I'll just read it to you. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house, for Jesus at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, It's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this is a story It's coming to my mind as I was thinking about making disciples, encountering people who are spiritually ill. Jesus interacted with those that needed to hear his message. He face-to-face interacted with them. He wasn't isolated in an echo chamber with people that would say, yeah, you're the son of God. You got it down. Like he was out in the battlefields interacting with people that would oppose him, that didn't appreciate him, all of these things um, because they needed it. He needed to be in a setting where he could meet with the people that were sick, the people that needed him. And he met with them intimately in this socially intimate setting. He didn't feel ashamed. He met with them because they needed him. You're going to need to come in contact with the spiritually sick. If you're going to function as the vehicle of blessing, you're going to have to come into contact with them too. Because they need a doctor. And chances are, when you are in the presence of the spiritually sick, you're going to see some of the symptoms of what it looks like to be spiritually sick. And how do we react to that? Don't be surprised and don't be offended at the symptoms of spiritual sickness. Why would you expect anything else? When people are in captivity, they don't even perceive. They don't understand. Why would you think that they would act like you? Or adhere to the same things that you do? There's no reason for them to. So don't be surprised when you see that. I find that any time we talk about the Great Commission, making disciples, evangelism, anything in that vein, people want practicality. They want, give me some steps. What can I do? How can I do this? Everybody wants to know, what's the secret sauce? Like, what's the code to do this? There's not one, I don't think. Don't ask me, because I don't know. (laughs) I'll, I'll just give you what I've got to give. I want to present this to you in a certain way. I want to talk to you about the difference between convictions and sensibilities. I think this is important when we're talking about meeting face-to-face with those that need a doctor, with the spiritually sick, okay? We'll start with convictions. This is important because you can't follow people into their reveries and into outright sin in an attempt to reach them with the message of the gospel. You can't do that. Right? That's not going to benefit you, and it's not going to benefit them. We are people that live with convictions as Christians, and we have foundational convictions that we share. Things about Jesus, his identity, 
his death, his life, his resurrection, all of those types of things. We're also people that have convictions about other things, gray area things, things that aren't necessarily outright sin, but it looks more like this. That's okay for you to do, but it's not okay for me to do. (laughs) Holy Spirit has told me not to do that. For some reason, that's going to lead me astray. So I'm not going to do it, but you can, and that's fine. We live with those types of convictions. And I say all this to say that that takes wisdom. You need to follow the Holy Spirit and his leading in those things. Don't violate your convictions in order to go out and reach people. Because those things matter. They're really important and they'll guide you and lead you. But you do need to differentiate between your convictions and your sensibilities. Because sensibilities will get you into trouble when it comes to reaching people. And the story that I just read to you in the eating with the sinners, it was the religious sensibilities of the Pharisees that were offended. It wasn't a matter of conviction. It was their sensibility. Jesus was not engaging in sin and what he was doing when he ate with those people. And it was an opportunity that he took to minister to them, regardless of what the religious folks thought it looked like. So I think we should ask ourselves, when we're in the presence of those who don't believe the same that we do, is it really a matter of conviction that you're bothered by the behavior or the way an unbeliever talks or the things that they do? Or is it your religious sensibilities that are being offended? We need to differentiate between those two things. And I came up with this little example, something that I just kind of grabbed out of the air. And here, here's this example. If you're talking to someone who doesn't believe like you believe, and, and they just say to you, like, you know what? I really enjoyed the Harry Potter series. I just really like it a lot. And before they can even finish their sentence, you've placed them in a category just based on that while simultaneously feeling a sense of contempt for them and self-righteousness and gratification for you. Because obviously, you know better than to engage in such things. I'm going to tell you that your chance of restoring the blessing to that person is plummeting. (laughs) Your opportunity to be a blessing vehicle is going down because of your judgments against them. Because you're so set apart, you're so this, you're so that, that you can't even just listen to another human being. I mean, it's an automatic offense. Your chances are going down of blessing that person with the truth of Jesus. Jesus wasn't a person of sensibilities. You know, a Jewish religious person with sensibilities doesn't minister to lepers. He was a man of conviction. And we have to be the same. Live your life concerned with loving God with everything you have. Focused on... Do I have integrity? Integrity is living what you believe, is doing what you say. Am I integrated? That's the word it comes from. It's integrated. What I believe, is that what I live? If you focus on your devotion to God and loving him with everything you've got and living with integrity, you're going to get a lot further with people than pointing out their failures and why they're wrong. That's just not going to work. So focus on loving the Lord with everything that you've had that you have when jesus came he created a whole new category completely new category that did not exist before 
And that's the category of the kingdom. Okay? It doesn't fit anywhere. It fits nowhere. There's no explanation for it. And so because of that, it stands out. People tend to try to categorize things. They try to fit, try to, try to understand it, to try to bring context to it. And when you live like Jesus, when you let the Holy Spirit lead you, and you have conviction, but you also have radical compassion for people, there's no place to put you. <laughs> and they have to reconcile with that. People are familiar with the old categories of religion. They're familiar with shame, condemnation, morality, correct behaviors, do this, don't do that. They know all of that. Everybody, it's old news. And they're familiar with Santa Claus in the sky gives me what I want. And I follow my heart and everything just falls apart anyway. They're familiar with that. Be in the new category, which is the category of the kingdom. If you live that life of conviction devoted to God, instead, instead of having an us versus them perspective, you have a radical compassion and life of conviction, you're going to draw people, you're going to influence people for the Lord. When Jesus looked out at the multitudes, he had compassion because he saw them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He understood, he understood our plight. He understood that humanity, all of it, was in captivity to those forces that they don't understand, that they don't even perceive. They just think that they're in charge of their own life, and it's tragic. He understood that. See them as in captivity, rather than seeing them as you know, people to grocery out, or as the enemy, or someone to be looked down upon. Because you were once the same thing. And the only thing that's different about you is now you've received grace. That's something you've just received, you know, freely you've been given, freely you give. So to finish up, um, a couple points of application that are generalized. And this is like a couple things that I have found helpful and that I'm still finding helpful as I go out and engage more with the world. I spent a lot of time at home raising kids, and I almost forgot how to engage the people that thought differently than me because um, I didn't have to. <laughs> And now I'm becoming reacquainted with that, and I love it. I love those opportunities to engage with people that think differently than me. So this is a couple things I've kind of discovered in that whole thing. Two points. How do you view people? This is how I view people. People are all precious. They were all made in the image of God, and they all have inherent value regardless of anything else. That's square one. That's foundation for me is you have inherent value, and before I know anything about you, you're precious. And so you're worth it to me to cultivate a curiosity about you, just as a person. Do you ever cultivate curiosity about people? Do you approach your interactions with people thinking that maybe they have something to teach you, not just that you have something for them? Sometimes I think it's easy for us to fall into this pattern of thinking that because we have the answer, the most important fact, truth in the whole universe, that we think we have all the answers. And that's not true. Those are two different things. We have the answer, the one that's most important, but that doesn't mean you know everything. And you can just give answers to everybody for everything all the time, and that it's just pat and easy. That's not true. We still have to 
have relationship with people, sometimes it's difficult. And uh, <clears throat> don't confuse having that most important answer with having all the answers. And I think that when you interact with people and you cultivate a real curiosity about them and what they might teach you, they pick up on that. You can't have relationships with people without back and forth, without reciprocity. It can't just be this, I'm the one with the answer, I've got the thing, here it is. <laughs> You've got to engage in relationship with people. Just be a real person. The second thing I think that's really important is to change your perspective on how you see the Great Commission. Change the perspective on how you see sharing your faith. See it as a constant possibility rather than something that takes place at an event or a special speech that you have prepared <laughs> for one moment in time. Um, see it as something that's organic rather than something that is a corporate activity that we do under the banner of the whole church. Because making disciples is a grassroots movement. It starts with each of us. It starts at the very bottom, and it, there's always the possibility for that to happen. I'm trying to go into my interactions in the world just praying, like, Lord, help me today to minister and to the people around me and influence them for you, and help me to love it and to just love them. Help me to radiate your light and your life as I go out. Help me to stand out because I'm a part of your new category because you've made me new. And that's just what it is. And I pray that that would shine and people would go, what the heck is that? What is even going on? And I'm trying to get in the habit of praying for such things. And I'm thinking about like our church-sponsored events that we do. We call them outreach. <laughs> and those things are important. And part of the goal of those outreaches, like when we do cookouts or whatever, is just to bless people with nothing in return. Jesus did that all the time. It wasn't like he was running people through, like, are you going to give me a good return on this? Are you going to become, like, super Christian before I heal you or whatever? He just did it. And um, so we're just going to go and we're going to bless people. But at the same time, the event is not the thing. The thing is you, person with Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, interacting with other human beings that you would not interact with if you weren't there. What we're mainly trying to do at those events is just create a substrate, a place where something can grow. The real meaning of that is for you to be there and to interact with people and maybe just a little bit change their perception of what Christians are like or inject some type of truth into their thinking. We talk a lot about what do people in our community need. I can tell you what people in any community need is they need someone to treat them with dignity. They need someone to just listen to them because they have value and worth. Not because I have something to get from you or you owe me something. It's just you're a person with worth and value. And so I'm going to sit here and listen to you. I think that speaks volumes. It's just these little things um, that's what we want to happen because the church as an organization with our signs and stuff, we can only say so much and we can only go so many places, but you can go everywhere. 
You can go to your job. You can go to the school. You can work concessions at the school. You can do all different kinds of things that corporately as a body we can do. And that's traditionally how the gospel is spread. It's just grassroots. It's just people. Not so much, let's have an organized event where our plan is to get this many names on note cards. It's you going out in your communities and being a person of faith and living your life authentically because of truth, because you're different. So that's what I want to focus on when it comes to being that blessing vehicle, is live your life like that's your purpose. And I think it'll change things around you. I think people will take notice of it. So that's not a compulsive activity, and we have to allow for the possibility of it at all times. Just keep your keep an open mind that any moment the Lord could be working through you as you come in contact with other people. So to finish up, just remember, you are set apart. Don't disregard your convictions. Also, you're meant to represent God to the world. You're meant to be his hands and feet and be a part of restoring his blessing to all of humanity. Because it's not just your better country you're waiting for. They're meant for it too. They just don't know it yet. You know, they're supposed to be there as well. And so don't leave prematurely. You gotta take a, people with you. You gotta share the message with them too. All right, let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Lord, I just pray for each one here as we go about our lives, Lord, that, uh, we wouldn't see it as just going about our lives, that we would see our time here as limited. The time here for every person is limited and coming to a close. And um, I pray that you would help us to wisely and passionately share our faith, share truth. And I pray that you would help us to wisely and passionately make disciples, Lord. Help us to listen to your spirit and divide rightly the things that we should do the way that we should conduct ourselves, Lord. And I just pray that you would work powerfully through each one here, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.